Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, November 10th. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. Well, this week, the third and final part of our three-part interview with Dave Logston of Y-East. In this section of the interview, we finish up the questions that came in from listeners about yeast. And you'll want to stay tuned after the interview when I read some additional questions to and answers from Dave that came in since we recorded that interview. But first, I have a bit of fun news. A couple of you had asked about Basic Brewing Radio t-shirts. If you'll remember, a BBR t-shirt got Andy and me a free ride from the airport in Denver when we went to the Great American Beer Festival, and that was thanks to listeners Scott and Ronnie from Northwest Arkansas. Now, I can't promise a Basic Brewing Radio t-shirt will get you any freebies, but you might meet fellow listeners when you're out and about, and you'll be helping to spread the word about the show and support it at the same time. Also, I'm toying with the idea that I basically stole from another podcast, uh, by the way, not on brewing, uh, of creating a gallery page with Basic Brewing Radio listeners wearing their shirts and brewing or standing in front of an interesting location or doing something cool, whatever they they think is interesting, you know, as long as it's legal and, you know, tasteful, uh, while wearing their T-shirts. So think about that. So you can see the the T-shirts on the site, basicbrewingradio.com. And a special thanks to our Basic Brewing Radio T-shirt model, Natalie. And also thanks to Kelly Dodson for helping me to uh, get the shirt uh, page posted. Now, we've got a lot of of, uh, correspondence this week, so let's get started. Let's look in the mailbag. I want to say howdy to a few folks who wrote wrote in to say hi this week. We heard from... uh, Torgny in Sweden, and uh, I hope to goodness I'm getting close to your uh, name pronunciation. And uh, Torgny listens to us uh, at work in Sweden. Uh, He says he's a member of the uh, Swedish Homebrew Association, or SHBF, which has about a 1,000 members. He says the SHBF recently held the 17th Annual Swedish Homebrewing Championship with Dave Loxton serving as a guest judge, which I I think he talked about that on the show. Terry in Kobe, Japan, who listens on his one-hour train ride to work, says he's been brewing for about 30 years. Terry also says home brewing is popular among foreigners there in Japan, but relatively unknown among the general Japanese public. He says a law in Japan limits home brewing to under 1% alcohol. Terry says, needless to say, no one worries much about that law too much. Matthew emailed to say he heard about this podcast from the guys at Craft Beer Radio. He says he hopes to get into homebrewing once he graduates from college in May. We get a lot of listeners through Craft Beer Radio, and I try to send some their way, too. So if you haven't heard it, check out craftbeerradio.com for a great show with Jeff and Greg on the craft beer industry. And they're doing uh, American IPAs this week, so very interesting stuff. After hearing us talk about yeast and oxygen on the show, Rick from Collierville, Tennessee, has a tip on aeration. He says, I just made a kit this afternoon of sinful double chocolate stout with oatmeal. Well, that sounds good. And uh, aerated the heck out of the wort, he says. I couldn't find bottled oxygen readily, and I didn't want to buy a fish tank air pump, so I combined power tools with beer making. A five-gallon paint mixer that attaches to a power drill does an excellent job of making a nice frothy foam on top of your wort, relatively inexpensive also. It uh, never ceases to amaze me how inventive home brewers are. Uh, I just make sure that uh, your paint mixer is sanitized 
before you try Rick's uh, tip. And it might not hurt to give the uh, fermenter a couple of minutes of shaking as a bonus, just in case. Neil from uh, Belmont, California, writes to get some advice. Neil says, I've been brewing for a couple years, basic extract recipes so far. My ales are coming out too bitter. I follow the recipes closely and even use hops with lower alpha acid content than in the recipe. Any suggestions? Will the bitterness fade with time in the bottle? Well, let's talk about hops for a couple of minutes. There are a few factors that go together to determine hop bitterness in beer. Uh, The amount of hops used, alpha acid percent, which uh, Neil uh, mentioned, the length of time in the boil, and the ratio of bitterness units per gravity units in the beer. There are also other factors like pH, but let's just address these four for now. The first is pretty basic. The more hops you use, the more bitterness you're likely to have. So the solution may be as simple as just cutting back on the hops that the recipe calls for. Alpha acid percent tells you the amount of bitterness the hop could potentially add to your beer, and the longer you boil the hops, the more of the potential bitterness you're going to pull out of the hops. When you read or hear about hops, you often hear terms like utilization and isomerization. You boil the hops to isomerize the alpha acids and extract their bitterness. The longer you boil, the more utilization you achieve, although the utilization curve starts to flatten out at about 60 minutes. That's why we generally boil bittering hops for an hour. But even hops that we add closer to the end of the boil for flavor and aroma still add bitterness. It's just that the amount of bitterness they add is less than if they were boiled for a full hour. Ray Daniels does a great job of explaining this, including giving you formulas for figuring out IBUs in your beer in his book Designing Great Beers. Finally, IBUs, or International Bitterness Units, alone will not tell you how bitter your beer will taste. You also have to figure in the gravity of the beer. For example, A beer with a starting gravity of 1.050, or 1050, with 30 IBUs will not taste nearly as bitter as a beer with a starting gravity of 1030 with the same IBUs. It's all about balance. That's why today's IPAs, or India Pale Ales, with IBUs close to or above the triple digits have to be really big beers with a lot of maltiness to counter all that bitterness. Unfortunately, I don't think the bitterness will fade in the bottle. In fact, as the yeast work, they may make the beer more dry over time and may wind up accentuating the bitterness a little more. Uh, The increased carbonation levels may also have an impact. If the beer is just too bitter to drink for your taste, what you may want to do is blend your bitter beers with other less hoppy beers like wheats or porters to see if you can find a beer cocktail that you like. Or... Maybe you could trade your hoppy beers to another home brewer who likes bitter beers and has some less hoppy styles to share with you. So, good luck, Neil. I hope you find some useful information in all that hoppy rambling there. Eric from Greenville, South Carolina writes and says, I recently made a Gruet, which is a medieval-style beer which contains no hops. I used ground ginger and cinnamon sticks in it, and it came out very sour, almost like a lambic, although more sour than that. I'm thinking about boiling a half a gallon of water, throwing in some pumpkin filling, uh, pumpkin pie filling, and some bittering hops, then adding it to the gruet to see if it will balance out the taste. Do you think that will work, or do the hops have to boil with the malt to balance the sweetness? The yeast I used was White Lab's Burton Ale yeast. Well, here's what White Lab says on their site about their Burton Ale yeast. 
It says, uh, from the famous brewing town of Burton-upon-Trent, England, this yeast is packed with character. It provides delicious, subtle, fruity flavors like apple, clover, honey, and pear. Now, Eric says the beer does have an apple flavor, but it's a sour apple flavor. So I don't know about this one. Eric could boil some hops in water for an hour and mix that into the beer after cooling it to get some bitterness in there, but I don't know about the pumpkin. Any ideas out there? If you have a suggestion for Eric, send it to james at basicbrewing.com or use the contact form on basicbrewing.com, and we'll see if we can steer Eric and his gruit down the right path. Wayne from Lansdale, Pennsylvania wrote to say the porter we talked about on the show with the lazy yeast is done and in the bottle. Wayne wound up repitching and got a full fermentation after that. Well, that's good news. Alex from Ottawa, Ontario writes about yeast that's anything but lazy. Alex has been brewing for about a month and says this about his second batch. He says, I simply rehydrated from a pack of Munton's brewing yeast. I followed the guidelines for this technique as described in John Palmer's How to Brew for proofing and then pitching the yeast. I observed almost immediate activity in the airlock yesterday, but when I awoke today, it had ceased. I know to expect a lag time, but since it was already quite active yesterday, I fear the uh, fermentation has stalled or stopped. Uh, Well, I advised Alex to uh, take a hydrometer rating to find the specific gravity of the beer and compare that to the original gravity he measured before pitching. That way he could find the apparent attenuation and see if the fermentation was complete. You, you figure the apparent attenuation by taking the difference between your original gravity and your terminal gravity and dividing that by the original gravity. For instance, if you have a beer with a starting gravity of 1.050 or 50 gravity units and it stops fermenting at 15 gravity units, then that's a difference of 35. 35 divided by 50, the original gravity, is 0.7 or 70% uh, apparent attenuation. Well, Alex did this and found out that his apparent attenuation was just under 80%. So, his fermentation was not stuck. It was complete in under 24 hours. So, after the interview with Dave, we'll have a question where Dave addresses short fermentation times. So, stay tuned for that. Chuck from New England writes about a fermentation that was even more active than Alex's. Chuck says... Up here in New England, we surf through the winter, and our homebrews keep us warm after some pretty cold sessions out on the water. I've been homebrewing for over a year now, and last night I finished cooking up my first batch of an Irish stout ingredient kit. This morning I went to check on my precious fermenting brew, only to find the beer bubbling up through the airlock. I figured if I could quickly and carefully transfer the beer from the glass carboy to my larger bucket... I could salvage the beer because it had only been fermenting overnight at this point. He says, uh, Like an idiot, I pulled the airlock off the top of the glass carboy, and my beloved winter stout came shooting out like a fire hose. Beer was spraying everywhere. My hand could not hold the pressure, and it was too late to stop the bleeding. So I stood and cheered, Woohoo! at the realization of a dream come true. I was taking a beer shower. So... <laughs> uh, So Chuck continues, After an hour-long cleanup and placing an order for another Irish stout kit, I wanted to ask you and your listeners, what did I do wrong that made the beer bubble up into the airlock? Well, Chuck, I'm I'm glad you have a good sense of humor about your beer shower ordeal. Uh, I've had some airlocks fill up and even blow off the fermenter, but, you know, I've never had a geyser like that. That sounds pretty amazing. I, I don't know that you did anything wrong. 
You know, sometimes due to warm temperatures or certain styles like wheat beers, in my experience, fermentations can become overactive. What you can do to avoid the shower is to get a bigger fermenter. For one thing, my primary carboy holds about seven gallons. Or you can use a blow-off tube. A blow-off tube is a, a big tube that fits tightly in the mouth of your carboy and runs into a bucket of water. The water acts as an airlock, and the bucket catches any foam that wants to make a run for freedom during the fermentation. You might try that next time you brew this kit. And finally, we have a question from the kegging show we did with Andy Sparks a few weeks back from Jeff in Brisbane, Australia. Jeff says, is there a practical time limit in which you should finish the keg after pulling the first beer? I understand there can be a difficulty with overcarbonation if CO2 is used to push the beer through the system. Now, I forwarded this question to Andy Sparks, our kegging expert, and Andy says, the trick is to use very little pressure to push the beer down the tap lines. The beer should be fine and will not overcarbonate if you use a very low pressure. Andy says, I've seen beers start to lose carbonation after sitting for some time with only a little beer left in the keg. What happens is the CO2 will come out of solution until the pressure in the keg rises to a point of equilibrium. So in a keg with lots of headspace, more CO2 will come out of solution to fill the void. By simply topping the keg off with CO2, it will stay fresh and carbonated. Andy continues, I have never really run into a problem with the keg overcarbonating by leaving it under pressure. I usually don't leave my kegs hooked up all the time. I only hook them to the CO2 for a short time to get the pressure up just enough to push the beer out of the keg. And Andy concludes, also my biggest problem with the kegged beer is that it never lasts long enough. And I can I can uh, testify to Andy's skill as a brewer, so I can understand that the kegs would tend to go uh, pretty quickly there. So, a lot of mail this time. I think that's great. We're getting to the point, though, where we uh, won't have time to read everything on the show, but I do make a point to answer every email that I get. So, if you don't hear from me and you use the online form, like I think... I think it was Neil that I tried to uh, uh, respond to this time, and, and I got it bounced back. Uh, if you use the online form and you, you haven't heard from me, you might have entered your uh, email address incorrectly on the page, so be careful when you do that. Now, we move on to more listener questions, but Dave Logston from Y-East gets to answer them, and they're all about yeast. Now, Chris from Chris from Evansville, Indiana writes in to say, I just wanted a little info on yeast starters and how to make the best one. I've heard of people adding DME, sugar, yeast nutrient, yeast energizer, etc. I've also heard you should shake them often and or add bottled oxygen to them. There seems to be a lot of variables here and would like to know what the manufacturer recommends. I've used the XL Smacks twice now with no starter and have no trouble. little endorsement there from Chris. Just wanted to know if there is a better way, always looking for improvement in my beginning brewing processes. Well, that's a good question that uh, Chris brings up, a couple of good uh, points he makes. Uh, one of the things that we find, and I'll start on the negative first, is that you can actually make starters that are nutrient-depleting to the yeast so that the yeast are actually in less uh, healthy condition after they've gone through a starter, even though you may produce some more cells there in, in uh, a less suitable condition for a good healthy fermentation because of the starter that was used or how it was done. Uh, number of variables there, so uh, beware of that. He mentions that I've used the packages and have had no problems, and yet 
still wants to pursue, I want to make a starter anyway, for whatever reason, uh, good malt extract is, is far better than sugar. Sugar is not uh, very uh, nutrient-rich other than carbon, and so it, it will ferment it, but it's going to deplete its nutrients within the yeast uh, uh, significantly and probably be in, in less, worse condition than, than better condition. Yeast nutrient definitely helps. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, malt or wort pretty much has a complete nutrient profile for yeast with the exception of oxygen, which isn't there. And, and the other uh, trace element that uh, yeast really need uh, that uh, isn't usually uh, available from wort uh, adequately is uh, zinc. Zinc is uh, is a uh, metal that yeast need in order to um, reproduce and maintains better fermentation characteristics and viability by that addition of of uh, zinc. That's that's very important. The nutrient that we make has uh, zinc in the appropriate levels, along with some other trace elements, uh, including uh, manganese, which zinc. Uh, uh, utilization also requires, uh, then there's some amino acids and, and uh, nitrogen compounds that are all beneficial for good, healthy yeast growth. So I would answer the question best possible, uh, a, a good malt extract that's fresh, yeast nutrients, and uh, plenty of oxygen are going to make the best starter possible. Now th- this leads into another question from Bill of uh, Greenbrier. Uh, which I think we can answer pretty quickly. He says, uh, I've read that if a brewer has an adequate starter of healthy yeast, that there really is no reason to aerate the wort prior to pitching. On the other hand, I've also read where it's beneficial to continue aerating the wort even after pitching, but only for the first 8 to 12 hours. What would you recommend? Well, he hit some pretty good points there. That uh, is essentially correct. If you have well-aerated yeast that's coming out of a starter, it may not need aeration in the wort. Hmm. Okay, as long as it's aerated well in the starter and it's got those sterols produced, and that's a little bit of a difficult, almost impossible for a home brewer to measure and know exactly what he's got there. So um, even getting suitable aeration through um, a starter is, is difficult to do. Stirred starters work better, oxygen works better, but it almost has to be continuous to get that yeast in good condition. I, I would still aerate the wort. Um, you don't do any or much, again, depending on who you ask, uh, harm in, in uh, word aeration. You may oxidize some compounds in the word, but uh, brewers are still doing it. Even the big ones, they, most of them still aerate their word. And uh, that oxygen that you do add to the word gets pushed out extremely quickly. What doesn't get utilized by the yeast um, is pushed out by CO2 within a matter of hours, so it uh, it doesn't stick around very long. And uh, that additional aeration that he's talking about, that uh, might be um, a good thing on especially high-gravity beers to aerate additionally. I don't haven't seen, as long as you've got good pitch rates, that you should have to aerate more than just uh, the initial uh, dissolved oxygen you get in the wort when you pitch the yeast. So... I think that um, that anything excess of that, uh, essentially, if you're keeping an aerobic environment going and oxygenating continuously, you're producing yeast cells and not alcohol. So mm. they're just, you're you're, you're going to produce one or the other depending on the fermentation process. If we oxygenated the yeast entirely through the 
through the propagation or through the fermentation, uh, you wouldn't maybe have a half a percent alcohol or something like that. And right. That's not what you'd want either. So uh, too much can be negative uh, on the flavor profile of the beer as well. So uh, just following the basic guidelines, getting it in there initially and, and well enough, and especially on high-gravity beers, you really need some oxygen in there and possibly up to even aerating a second time after uh, up to up to 12 hours in the fermentation wouldn't be a bad thing, but to do it continuously, I don't think is, is something that's uh, uh, worth the effort or the uh, or the or the oxygen that you're going to be blowing off back into the atmosphere. And he he continues by saying that uh, he's read that yeast reproduce, reproduces the fastest when fermentables are gradually fed into the starter, sufficient to keep the gravity at about 1.010. On the other hand, he's also read that it's better for starters to be prepared in a wort with an original gravity of something like 1.040, which is what I do, essentially, in order that they will not suffer osmotic shock when they are pitched. This latter comment doesn't make much sense to me because when they are pitched, the final gravity of the starter is probably dropped down to 1.010 anyway, uh, which is correct, and if the former is their recommended regimen that can be followed by a home brewer to accomplish that. So I guess the question is whether to whether to step up your starter if you want a big one, or or how do you interpret that? Well, it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult to uh, try gather what he was looking for, but, uh, yeah, if you incrementally feed your yeast wort, and maintain a low gravity, you're going to produce a lot of yeast cells with, if you have adequate aeration and the, and the nutrients that you're providing are good. Uh, nearly impossible or impractical for a home brewer to do into in, that uh, uh, incremental feeding unless you were stepping up like you were talking about. And yes, 1040 original gravity is a very good starter gravity. 1040 to 1048, that range is what uh, is pretty easy on the yeast, and that's what you want to do is make a nice environment. Lower, 1020 is even better, uh, but uh, you don't get that much growth. So to make it practical and effective and, and, and in a good environment, uh, starting with 1040, now if I were to do this, I would start with a 1040 original gravity, and I would uh, aerate it well and maybe stir it and let it grow overnight, uh, one to two days maybe at most, and then I would take that and, and pitch that into uh, another volume up to maybe five times as much as I started with. So if I started out with a pint, I might go with uh, uh, five pints on the, on the second step um, or at least up in a maybe two, three times minimum increase in volume. And do it on a, uh ongoing basis, like I said, one to two days so that we were keeping that in the active growth phase uh, through that rise and at the same time keeping the gravity moderate. What we're, we're trying to stay away from is he doesn't, uh, Bill doesn't mention it here directly, but we don't want to put it in a 1080 gravity to get a lot of yeast growth because that's where that osmotic pressure is difficult for the yeast uh, uh, to take up those nutrients and, and have a healthy fermentation. So uh, contrary to uh, to some myths that are out there, even if you're making a high-gravity beer, you don't acclimate the yeast in high-gravity starters because you're really doing an adverse effect. Instead of, uh, of uh, acclimating them, you're just making them stressed from the beginning, and they're not going to grow as well, especially by the time they get dumped back into another high-gravity word as well. So keeping the gravity moderate is the best, and uh, I think he hits on that. And if you um, keep in that 1040, 1048 range when you make your starter 
and uh, give it a couple of days and either pitch from there or step it up further along uh, uh, along the way of getting a uh, higher cell count for either bigger batches of beer or or higher gravity beers, you'll be uh, right on track and, and getting the results you want. Well, there you go. Uh, Russ from Bainbridge Island, Washington. I think we've already asked, uh, answered his question. Uh, he talks about uh, how to harvest and store yeast from a previous batch, and I think if yeah, he, if I think we he... mentioned that. How long? How long can it be stored? What's recommended? Uh, up to a month is probably uh, as long as uh, I would want to keep any yeast uh, without uh, getting it back into some fresh wort and aeration to to uh, keep the, vi- the the percentage of viable yeast high enough for good fermentation. And then uh, we're we're getting near the end, Dave. I, <laughs> this is like, and what what did you say the the, the Australian uh, the Australian broadcaster said about you talking oh, about uh, yeast? We talked so long. He said I could uh, probably talk underwater with a mouthful of marble, <laughs> 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 which I, I which I guess is a compliment. I don't I don't know for sure, but uh, we we had some fun, and and uh, this is this has been a great uh, great. Uh, little bit of time we spent together and you're right it is almost beer 38 <laughs> well we, we've got listeners in uh, uh, down under in uh, australia and uh, new zealand so uh, you know they may have heard you down there i don't know uh christopher from and i hope i'm pronouncing pronouncing this right maybe you can help me from machias washington uh, he says he's been brewing for about six years, always extract. While his beers have been generally improved and become more interesting with, with experience, he's been battling low attenuation. He's tried splash, rocking, and pouring from a great height, aeration, starters, dry extract versus syrup, and a few other tidbits from brewing message boards. On my last brew, I broke down and got an O2 system. It was a big stout using eight pounds of amber extract syrup and Weiss uh, 1084 from the new Activator XL Smack Pack, which was quite swollen at pitching. He pitched at about 77 degrees and did a couple of squirts of O2 in the wort. While the beer will speak for itself in a few weeks regarding attenuation, might your guest comment uh, any about yeast promotion measures? Well, I think we've I think we've done that. Also. What is why yeast stance on starters giving this new larger yeast smackback product? Well, I, I think we can maybe predict uh, what you'll say, but uh, take it, Dave. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess he's kind of in the middle of things and, and hoping for good results. And he looks like he's finally gotten to realize he needed an O2 system, especially for high-gravity beers like we talked about. Uh, that rocking and pouring from a great height uh, doesn't really get too much dissolved oxygen into the wort, and that's probably where most of his issues have been. It may have been a combination of uh, cell counts or how much he's been actually been pitching, and uh, more more likely the biggest uh, uh, factor being the um, lack of aeration. So now he's got O2 in the wort, but I, I was taken back a little bit when he said he did a couple of squirts of O2 into the wort. It uh, doesn't take too much dissolved oxygen uh, time-wise, through a stone, uh, aeration stone, to uh, get uh, suitable uh, aeration for the yeast. But uh, I think we figured it takes about close to a minute mm. of flow. And again, there's so many variables, the size of the stone, the porosity, uh, the flow rate of the bottle, and, 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 and those variables. But uh, once you have, if you do it slowly so it trickles in at as, as uh, slow as possible, you get better solubility. And uh, the issue that brewers come up against is that now it's foaming up so much it's all coming out the top of my fermenter and I've mm. got a bigger mess and, 
and risking contamination. So that's you want to try to avoid that as well. So um, uh, putting in in slowly and, and for about a total of about a minute of slow aeration into five gallons probably is going to get uh, as much oxygen dissolved as is possible. So uh, as long as he did enough on that, uh, he should end up with a good fermentation on this beer. I hope he uh, lets us know how things do go with it and if it did improve uh, um, his overall profile. But then he also uh, goes on and asks about uh, uh, do we even make a starter? Well, um, I'd say, and I know that I got my guys here. I think maybe we're just lazy, but because we got easy access to yeast, but uh, we just uh, take the activators and and uh, smack them and and uh, pitch them uh, when we do our test brews here, just because it's uh, so easy to do. And uh, for home, you know, it's always that uh, variable between uh, convenience and cost and interest in the hobby. And I think everybody has to take their own. Uh, steps and approach based on what they're really out to get. If you want convenience and good beer, you don't need to make a starter if you use enough yeast and aerate well. And if you uh, want to save a little bit and repitch or make a starter and, and get a little more volume for making 10 gallons instead of 5, for example, that certainly is an option. And like I say, we, we help people out when they've got uh, questions and issues like that, and we'll try to, try to resolve them for them so that uh, we keep them on the right track. Now, one one thing about starters that we that we hadn't uh, uh, hadn't addressed, we had a uh, sanitation or a sanitization show uh, recently, and one one piece of advice that we said was uh, in order to help uh, avoid infection in your beer, one one way you can do that is to make sure that your your fermentation gets going quickly and is healthy. Uh, so that the uh, yeast out contaminates, you know, the other bad bugs uh, in the beer. Uh, so, you know, may, in along along with having good sanitation or sanitization, making a starter or pitching with an adequate amount of yeast to begin with is a good way to to make sure that you don't have an infection in your beer. Is that is that accurate advice? Well, uh, it can be uh, as long as you don't contaminate the starter. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, bacteria grow very fastidiously uh, compared to the the way yeast will grow, so that that can be an issue. I know that's where people have had problems with uh, taking dry yeast and trying to make a starter. Like I mentioned earlier, dry yeast typically has uh, lots of other bugs in it along with the yeast, uh, whereas our pure liquid cultures shouldn't have that variable. Uh, most of the time, uh, contamination issues come from the wort and not so much the the air, and that, that's a misnomer that some people have. As long as you've got good, stable wort that has been boiled adequately and cooled without contaminating it, then that's where uh, you don't have that competition of uh, contaminating organisms. If you do your good, good cleaning, good sanitation, uh, that should not be an issue. However, it is true, uh, yeast fermentations will help if there is contaminants present. Uh, yeast will drop that pH of the wort very quickly as fermentation starts, and that inhibits some bacteria from growing that lower pH. So, yes, it can have a have an impact. Uh, it's not the whole story, but it's it's a part of it that that is a big factor. 
And so the main thing is is, is uh, you know do it right and make make good stable wort. And when we say stable wort, uh, there's a test that a lot of commercial brewers use, and uh, home brewers could do this as well. It's it's quite easy to do without a laboratory, and that's to um, take a sample of their wort as it comes out of their heat exchanger as it as it's cooling when they're filling their fermenter up before they've added yeast to it, and put that in a in a sterile flask or a sanitized little jar. You know, it doesn't take but but a few ounces, and cover that up with loosely with foil or something, and just let it incubate by itself. Now, if you did a good job with your cleaning and sanitizing and everything was, was done the way it should be, that wort will be stable for three days or more. It'll just, it, the, the tube will settle out just like it does in your fermenter, and it'll remain sweet and smell good, and you'll know that, hey, I've done my job cleaning-wise, and this, and I pitched my yeast, everything should be fine. I don't, shouldn't have not, should not have contamination issues with this beer because, like I say, most of it comes from, uh, ill-prepared wort, and, and you'll know if you have a, a, a dirty hose or, or a heat exchanger that's not uh, that's not being cleaned and sanitized properly, and that, that, that wort sample that you took within uh, three days, it'll start fermenting on its own. It'll start producing those nice phenolic characteristics and clouding up and, and uh, give you that off odor that's typical of bad beer. And that's, if it's in there by itself, it's also in there, and your fermenter competing with the yeast, and and even though the yeast in higher populations can suppress a lot of that growth or uh, minimize some of that growth, those off flavors are still in there, and they're they're um, affecting the the flavor profile of the beer. So, little wort stability test, simple thing, easy to do, doesn't require much more than like I say a, a sterile flask or a sanitized jar and a, just a little a couple ounces of sample to uh, to see what kind of job you're doing with your sanitation. Of course, if your if your fermenter is nasty, you know if you haven't done a good job of sanitizing your fermenter, uh, that won't show up in the flask. Uh, no, test. well, you'd have to pull a sample back out before you before you added your yeast, which would make it another step and a little more a little more difficult. But um, most, you know, fermenters are pretty easy to see. You can inspect them well. Uh, a little easier to clean than hoses and uh, especially heat exchangers, depending on the design. And when we see commercial breweries have contamination problems, more than 95% of it is in the heat exchanger. It's when that, after the wort's been boiled, before it gets into the fermenter, it's getting contaminated in that, in that handling point along the way. And that's where, um, you know, even though you can clean your hoses for a good long time, they are, anything that you're working with plastic is porous. And, uh, especially over time, they tend to crack and open up and, uh, harbor things that are makes it much more difficult to clean and impossible to sanitize at that point. So those are things that, uh, little things that, I, you know, people say, oh, I made 10 batches of beer, everything is good, now everything I make is bad. Um, start looking at those uh, that, that critical point right there and, and do a little testing along the way, and you will you should be able to answer some of your own questions by uh, just taking a good close look. And hoses are cheap to replace. Plas- yeah, plastic yeah, hoses. Cheaper than a batch of beer. That's for a fact. If it's if it's clouding and it's got any age on it, and it, uh, that's that's where there that susceptibility starts to increase. And and finally, the the final question, Dave. <laughs> Warren from from Beer Country, Davis, California. Uh, is uh, UC Davis not one of the the better schools in the uh, in the country for for beer? UC 
Davis is a very good school. You're right. That's uh, uh, a good program there that's been around for a long time. He, he Warren says uh, or asks, I wanted to know if Dave has any experience using non-brewing strains of yeast in brewing. I'm particularly curious about the use of the 3347 Eau de Vie strain for high-gravity brewing. Did I pronounce that right? My, yeah. my language was Spanish in, uh, in yeah, college. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty good French there. <laughs> I think it's French. <laughs> um, the the uh, That strain, the 3347, is a very clean, neutral profile, and I've known a number of brewers that have used it in uh, making high-gravity beers and have, have, have appreciated the fact that it's, doesn't produce a lot of uh, uh, esters and uh, f- other phenolic compounds like Belgian or even champagne yeast can do. So that is a good option. And, and I know there was a question earlier, I think we may have skipped over it, about uh, any other uh, good clean uh, yeast that uh, ferment well even at relatively warm temperatures. And, and one of those ought also be uh, like an alt yeast, like our 1007 German ale yeast, very clean, very neutral uh, even at uh, slightly warmer temperatures or higher gravities, it doesn't produce a lot of fruitiness that the the British type yeast, in particular, uh, uh, produce during their fermentation. So that, that's, that's an option there. The O to V works uh, especially well with fruit sugars, uh, probably a little bit better than even with uh, malt, malt sugars and uh, a lot of uh, brewers that uh, make uh, sizers or uh, or um, other um, other uh, beers with fruit additives and high gravity find that to work particularly well. Now that this is a typically a wine yeast, or this is actually was a distilling yeast is ah. where we, we where we found it at. And it, would, it if it's in uh, optimum conditions, it'll it produce uh, up to twenty five percent alcohol. Everything being in in in, in good shape, but it, it's primary. It, instead of fermenting uh, maltose as effectively, it's a very effective uh, fructose. Uh, fermenter uh, uh, as well, so it uh, it's got uh, a good alcohol tolerance, uh, and again, if it's got a good nutrient base and and combination of sugars, it's uh, it's very very effective. Well, gosh, I, I Dave Logston, I can't uh, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate your your spending so much time with us. I hope we haven't uh, overstayed our welcome. Well, hey, talk, talking <laughs> beer and talking yeast—that's uh, that's my life. I've uh, been doing it uh, for an awful long time, and and enjoy it. And I just love to have the opportunity to uh, see some of these questions that people have, and and be able to talk a little beer. I want to thank Dave Loxton of Y Yeast for all the time and great advice he gave us in that interview. And he just keeps on giving. A few of you emailed questions for Dave after the interview was recorded a few weeks ago, and he was kind enough to reply with answers. Well, first, we go from uh, from Alex from uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. He had a few questions for Dave, and Dave answered all of them. First, uh, Alex says, Are there legal issues involved with culturing yeast strains that came from Y-Yeast or other companies? Is there a patent-like model for yeast? Dave answers, yeast and other organisms can be patented in certain situations. The patents require unique characteristics to be identified and documented. The patent typically restricts use of that strain for the same application that the patent describes. The difficulty is to identify a given strain as infringing on a patent, usually done by the patenting party to defend their patent. 
Probably more typical is a strain identification or name patent. For example, Y yeast number 1056, American Ale Yeast, is patented. Others cannot legally claim to market number 1056, American Ale Yeast, or a confusingly similarly named yeast. The second question, apart from dumping, what are the best ways to increase diacetyl production? Dave says, I don't know what dumping refers to, but to get more diacetyl in a beer, use high levels of crystal-type malts, use a highly flocculent yeast, and remove the yeast quickly after the beer attenuates before the diacetyl has a chance to be reduced by the yeast. The third question, apart from warm fermentation temperatures, what are the best ways to increase ester production? Dave says, strain selection. Some strains produce more esters. Also start fermentation cold and slow, then allow a temperature rise to the warm end of the fermentation range. And the final question from Alex, with yeast blends, like Rosalaire, how do the different strains interact to produce the final profile? Isn't there a risk for some strains to dominate? And Dave says, some strains work symbiotically and maintain a relatively good balance over time. Some do not. Even with a Rosalaire blend, Lactic acid bacteria will increase over time and cause imbalance. These changes have to be kept in check. Jean-Luc from Long Island writes, If the apparent attenuation is 75%, what does that mean? I can't believe that fermenting a wort made from a very fermentable sugar, mashed at, say, 147 degrees Fahrenheit, will ferment to the same final gravity as one mashed at a higher temperature, say, 156 degrees Fahrenheit. What about adjuncts, sugar, etc.? Corn or cane sugar will lower the final gravity compared to an all-malt. If both would start at 1056, where does the 75% fit into the equation? Dave says apparent attenuation is calculated as a standard method to measure the fermentability of the wort. Our laboratory takes an additional step of using a standardized wort to compare the fermentability of different yeast strains. You are correct, the wort makeup does have an impact on the apparent attenuation. For purposes of evaluating beer and wine yeast, we use a standardized profile that is typical of average beers. It is our intention to give relative values that one can use to compare the effects of using different yeasts. Ryan from Milwaukee writes, I was listening to your last podcast and the comment about watching the weight of a flask drop as the beer ferments gave me an idea. And uh, what we said was as the, or what Dave said was as the sugar is turned into alcohol and carbon dioxide, as the carbon dioxide leaves, the weight of the flask decreases. Ryan says, would it be possible to take the weight of my carboy and wort and then weigh it before bottling to calculate alcohol percentage? It would have to be a single stage fermentation, of course. Anything to get rid of the hydrometer and wine thief would be great. Dave says, you could measure the approximate alcohol content by weight analysis. This would be a rough estimate requiring some precision of measurement. By weighing the initial wort to the nearest gram, for example, 19 liters, or approximately 5 gallons, of 1048 original gravity wort, the carboy weight might weigh approximately 21.28 kilos. Fermentation to a terminal gravity of 1012 should yield approximately 3.75% alcohol by weight. He says the carbon dioxide produced should yield a similar amount and volatize. So, 3.75% of 21.28 kilograms equals 0.8 kilograms. 
280 minus 0.8 equals 20.48 of uh, net kilograms of beer. So, uh, 0.8 kilograms equals 1.76 pounds in reduction in weight. In theory, then, once the weight of the carboy was reduced by that amount, terminal gravity should be achieved. And Dave finishes, uh, please note variations in the brewing process and ingredients could affect your results. Wow. Uh, for me, I'm sticking with the hydrometer. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of math. Uh, or, you know, Ryan, you could invest in a refractometer, which uh, is a little expensive, but I hear is easier to use than a hydrometer and, and only uses just a, a smidge of, uh, of beer or wort to, uh, to test. So look into refractometers and, and see what you think about those. And finally, Lou from New Jersey writes, is pitching a double dose of yeast an effective strategy? A double dose of yeast, an effective strategy for making a batch in less time. Is there any harm other than wasting yeast in using double dose? And Dave says, pitching higher volumes of yeast will have an impact on the flavor profile and typically will affect the rate of fermentation. As cell counts increase, the cell doubling decreases. This results in a lower aromatic profile of the finished beer. In some cases, this may be desirable. Lager beers are often pitched at one and a half times higher than ales to produce a cleaner profile. Wheat beers are often pitched at half the rate of ales to produce more esters and aromatic compounds. If a high enough pitch rate is used, a beer could ferment out in 24 hours or less, like the the batch that we talked about before, but the flavor is dry, thin, sharp, and lacking much desirable substance. So there you go. Wow. Uh, now that's a f- that's a show full of information. Uh, once again, thanks to everybody for writing in, and especially thanks to Dave Logston from Y Yeast. Well, next week we visit with our friend Bob Hansen from Brees Malton Ingredients Company as he gives us tips on making the most out of an extract brew. Then the following week we start our chat with author John Palmer about all-grain brewing. If you have brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing, while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing, Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step. And you can see a listening to the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.